This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films, joined as always by the legendary football writer, Paddy Barclay, author and retired journalist. Not putting the retired in front of author just yet, because I still expect and hope to read more of his books in the future. Um, We're taking you on this journey through Old Trafford history. If you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. And if you are watching the video version of it, you'll notice Paddy's in some kind of film noir setting there, black and white on our screens, um, which is, I've been just finished watching Better Call Saul and watching Paddy as he's in the flash forward scenes um, with Gene Takovich as um, Saul Goodman's alter ego in there. So it's <laughs> it's uh, very fitting for me at the moment. I'm enjoying that. But yeah, we are um, we are today looking at Manchester United's. I, I don't know if they call it this. United were definitely entering the centenary year. The centenary year would be 1978, obviously. And the celebration sort of went throughout 1978. But they classified the season as being the centenary because it was the 100th season of the club. Um Say the hundredth, the seventy seventh, and um, the hundredth, including Newton Heath's history as well. Um, before we get the season underway, Paddy, last time we talked about Tommy Doherty being sacked, we didn't talk mm-hmm. about the man who had been hired to replace him. No, um, so, um, the man who did come in, surprisingly enough, I and mean, a lot of people forget this key little detail in United history or Dave Texan's history. Sexton yeah. had actually resigned from Queen's Park Rangers. He'd sort of given a mandate of, you know, given himself a mandate of trying to win a trophy within three years. And then he stepped down after failing to accomplish that. And before <coughs> the opportunity came up to take the job at United, he was actually planning to go back to Arsenal as a coach. Yeah. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't planning to be a manager. So this opportunity came up for him. Um, took us yeah. through um, Dave Sexton's reputation. Yeah, well, its its reputation was was very good. As he he was uh, generally regarded as someone who had made the tradition from uh, transition, excuse me, from uh, coach to manager. He'd had early success at Chelsea. He'd followed this up by nearly winning the league at QPR. We discussed it. <clears throat> excuse me. In the last episode, they came within a point of pipping Liverpool to the title. Uh, you know the great Liverpool side of the seventies, and and so um, yes, he was very much uh, the coming thing. He was, um, you know, hugely respected as a coach. And it's without giving too much away, I think it, you know we're talking now in twenty twenty two, and I think you know his legacy. If you were to say you know remembering Dave Sexton, you would say well along with Don Howe, one of the great English coaches. Um, the inspiration to the likes of uh, Roy Hodgson and 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 and, and, um, and so on, the, you know, the next next generation. Um, but yes, it it looked as if he was the kind of guy who could make the transition to management, which I, I think I suppose you know we're talking about Don Howe didn't make uh, Hodgson did, um, but uh, yeah, um, it looked like they'd made a very good choice. And interestingly, they. It was interesting, you know, to note the the swings of Manchester United, almost choosing the opposite of what they'd lost. You know, they'd lost Tommy Doherty, and so they they went for the for the complete opposite. Instead of a wisecracking extrovert Doc, um, they went for the introspective, almost academic, um, uh, and and highly moral, uh, devoutly Catholic. Uh, Dave Sexton, and uh, 
it, it did seem to make sense. Um, the, you know, Busby and, and to an extent, Louis Edwards, the chairman, were, were very keen about the good name of the club. And <clears throat> after the, the perceived scandal of, 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 of Doherty going, and um, so yeah, it, it all seemed to, all seemed to be good. It, it, it seemed to be it seemed to be a very good fit, but um, perhaps didn't quite work out that way. But you tell the story. It'll take, yeah. it'll take us quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to take us four episodes to cover quite, <laughs> yes. quite, quite why um, it didn't work out. But instantly, um, there seemed to be a, a decent rapport with the, the squad. It was an instant conflict. Conflict, you know. Tommy Kavanagh, Frank Blundstone were kept on as the, the key staff. And Sexton and, 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 and in, uh, uh, initially physio Laurie Brown, of yeah. course, who's, you know, the, the, who's, uh, you know, um, Part in the, the love triangle that, that that ended that ended the Man United career of Tommy Doherty, but um, <clears throat> Laurie Brown remained initially as physio. Frank Blunston, um, another ex-Chelsea man like Dave, um, remained. Tommy Cab, as as you say, um, uh, who who had been pretty major assistant to uh, to Tommy Doherty, so. The continuity was what he wanted, and unfortunately, it wasn't what Man United got. Yeah, Harry Gregg also recalled to the club at some point during this season or around this time. Anyway, yeah. Sexton called him called him in as a goalkeeper coach, even though Gregg insisted he was not a goalkeeper coach; he was just a coach. Obviously, Gregg's going to be forthright <laughs> his way of delivering it. Um, but the goalkeeper certainly appreciated their time with Harry for sure. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the thing to, to know about Sexton, he was a definite coach where Doherty wasn't. Doherty was a manager, Sexton was a coach. Yeah. And he was very much instruction over instinct. He wanted the players to understand why they were playing the way they were playing. He wanted, for example, trying to teach Gordon Hill why he should be playing with this instinctive kind of behaviour. And if you think about it from, from the perspective, the, the, the other thing to mention is Dave Sexton was under 21 manager for England. So he was working with the under 21s. And it's very, very successful. The players were all responsive to that. The issue that, or the conflict that you had with Sexton's success at that level and with a senior squad is that the younger players are more receptive to any kind of coaching with that kind of thing with, with regards instincts and expression um, because the younger players are the more impressionable to take in. When you go into a senior squad like United, who have already, I mean, this Doherty side had been at least two years formulated in a really rigid way of playing and, and i don't mean that as a as an insult to the team they had a very defined way of playing and it was very much the docky style and as soon as you bring in someone um like you said like the, the very often uttered phrases off the cuff with the docky yeah. side even yeah. though the most people would say it was more methodical than that but that was essentially the phrase that was used but sexton came in wanted the place to understand what they were doing um and it, some players were responsive to that. Martin Buchan yeah. thought it was a good thing to move forward. Steve Koppel certainly did. The most studious players, it seemed, were more responsive to this. But the That's ones right. who liked the off-the-cuff style, Greenoff being able to play out as that second sweeper in defence, Hill not having to do anything, Pearson in attack as well. Um, these were players who were starting to be instructed to play with a little bit more responsibility. Um, it started quite well. I mean, there were four games unbeaten at the start of the season. The opening day win at Birmingham, Lou McCorry, um scoring a hat-trick and until 2021, he was the last player to do that on the opening day. Golden no. the fourth goal in that game. And I urge anyone to go back and look at that goal because it's a ball, I think it's Alberton, plays it down the left flank. It drops over Gordon's shoulder without mm -hmm. taking touch. He volleys it into the top corner. It's an absolute torture of a goal. And um, it's one of the great goals, really, and it never really gets talked about, possibly because it's in the Sexton era. But um, it really is one of the fantastic um, goals in United history. Um, but the issues that United had um, with their previous squad, we talked about the thin nature of it, Paddy and um, mm. Sexton come in. He didn't instantly make any signings. He, he wanted to work with what he's... With what he got the the overall reputation of this squad was very good. They just won the seventy seven cup final. They were they were very youthful in composition. So every um, conceivable reasonable explanation 
for what Sexton would do would be that he would take what he inherited and coach them to improve. <laughs> so he wasn't instantly looking to bring in signings. But um, as the autumn rolled on, it was very obvious that the squad was very thin, injuries and problems with... There was one um, incident. They There was a, a friendly planned in Tehran, um, which was a bit of a money spinner. The players weren't really um, keen to go on it, but they had to have injections to go on. A lot of them felt unwell. There are a couple of really big defeats around this time. 4-0 um, against West Brom away. And then they lost 4-0 in Porto in the Cup Winners' Cup, which will come to the European exploits in a moment. The players blamed both defeats on on the injections. I'm not sure the timing works <laughs> on that, actually, because I think the injections came after one of those games. So at least one of those games we don't have an excuse for. Um, but nonetheless... The wafer-thin nature of this squad means that they were losing big games and losing them handsomely as well. They lost, I think, is it 4-0 at home to Forest, 3-0 at Coventry. All of the work that had been done to achieve this pinnacle of professional application against Liverpool in the final, which we, we thought that was a turning point for them, it was now lost and there was a massive regression, it seemed. By the turn of the year, United were already having to sell for mid-table. Talk me through, Paddy, this start to this Sexton era. Is it merely a case of the fact that the squad was too thin and that maybe Sexton had been too trusting of of the quality they would got? We United not as good as we previously thought? Yes, I think a bit of all of those. I mean, um, to, to deal with, with the last bit, um, I think it, it was it was the, the Doggerty era had been a sort of um, a phenomenon, in a way, a case of of, of momentum feeding itself. I mean, uh, Sammy McElroy, your friend and mine, I hope, <laughs> um, has uh, you know talked about the, the the effervescence and 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 you you have a sense of the players enjoying going into to to work during the week and and and, and that enjoyment spreading into the play. <clears throat> When a new manager of a, of a more studious, more academic disposition came in, suddenly that momentum ground to a halt. And yes, you could see um, the flaws. In particular, you touched on it earlier, the depth of the squad. Um, you know, how, who was the replacement for Pearson? You know, who, who could stand? You may, maybe you could move Makari back up front, but Pearson was... was was was, bit, was had more of a physical presence, yeah. uh, so there there was there wasn't a lot of uh, of that the the um, and, and and the flaws as you say emerged um, in particular as I say the, the the lack of backup a couple of injuries and and, and this squad would really feel it um, maybe under Doherty the players weren't as susceptible to it. Injury, you know, when you're enjoying your football, it doesn't hurt as much, you know. Yeah. And that's what players tell me, or have always told me. And and you know that, that suddenly had come to an end. It was a new regime and and a new atmosphere around the club. Yeah, um, it certainly was around the turn of the the year. Obviously, United knew they weren't going to be challenging for the league for sure. And Sexton felt that that was the time where he was going to make this um, his first major moves into the transfer market. The biggest issue would probably be in Martin Buchan's injury because he was out for a few games and United were conceding a lot of goals. Yeah, Obviously, he wasn't going to take Buchan out of the side when he came back, but that meant Brian Greenoff because he wasn't a traditional stopper centre-off. And that's the way that Sexton... I mean, you have to understand the way that we're going to analyse this side... Everything that Sexton does is going to sound like it's more pragmatic. Another description for this could be sensible because the other way of looking at it is that Dockett's side was almost unsustainable in the way that he had two sweeper centre-offs. He didn't have a tackler in midfield, didn't have a, a really tremendous physical presence up front in terms of a proper target man. All these yeah. things, you know, that Dockett side liked. So if you put anyone in charge, and we're talking any manager probably in the league, it's going to start to look more pragmatic. That's so the, the signings that um, that Sexton made, he went to Leeds to sign two players. The first was Gordon McQueen. The second was George Oden. McQueen, McQueen was a you know tall centre-half, certainly 
more imposing in the air Brian would have been Brian had to make do with uh, opportunities uh, right back in defensive midfield where he sort of played earlier in his career and Joe Jordan who was um most certainly known as a, a intimidating um physical centre forward not really a goal scorer of a great nature but um certainly a presence in there to get on the end of crosses which is what um Sexton was hoping for there was a lot of repetition of crossing in in training and they're hoping yeah. that they're the target man in training um yeah. there was one I think there was a famous drill where they were talking about um Sexton was going on and on and on about getting the corners right but they weren't doing the routine right and yeah. at one point they contrived to just make the the players contrive between them just to have a cross and let Gordon McQueen score from one of the corners yeah. And I think one of the players quipped to Sexton at the end of the session, why don't we just try the one where we just cross it and head the bloody ball in the net? <laughs> yes. But he was so keen for them to get the strategy right. Um, one of those opposing players was Gordon Hill. Gordon had been taught, um, well, not taught, he'd been told to watch videos of the great Hungarian wingers, which you wouldn't think is necessarily a bad thing. We've already talked about the great Hungarian wingers and their yeah. great benefits. But Gordon didn't take very kindly to that. He felt it was trying to repress him. Um, Sexton really felt that Hill was too cavalier, he was too disrespecting of the team strategy. And really, there were a couple of incidents that started to sort of eat away at the team um, spirit, really. A few weeks into his career at the club, Jordan was in, involved in an incident where he elbowed an opponent in the cheek. He'd also be yeah. involved in a later one as well after this. But... Um, Gordon Hill was watching. He mentioned how shocked he was that this had happened. He felt it was way too physical and um, violent for a United team to be playing in. Yeah. Um, but weeks later, anyway, Hill was out of the side because Derby, now under the managership of Tommy Doherty, made a yeah. club record bid to sign him. Hill was top scorer at United from the week for the second consecutive season. Um, but Sexton deemed that he was expendable in this setup, um, which was a deeply, deeply unpopular sale, wasn't it, Paddy? Uh, yes, it was. It was... Um, I mean, Hill had been almost um, the epitome, the the, the, the the sort of single embodiment of Doherty-ism, uh, of this, yeah. you know, free-flowing, fun football. Um <clears throat> even more so than Steve Koppel, who was just as um, just as fundamental to to the attractiveness of it. But yes, Gordon Hill was 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 the laughs. Was the was a serious player, of course. But he was uh, he, he was the the smile on the face of Manchester United. And uh, so when he left and left to join rejoin Doherty, it seemed that a little bit of the character of Manchester United had gone with him, and 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 I mean there were embodiments, Wayne, weren't there, of of how that how the fans felt that they'd lost uh, one of their favourite sons. Yeah, um, as he was sold, somebody graffitied a wall near Old Trafford, and he said Hill in Sexton out, which yep. already gave you an indication of. Um, Yes, was view of the brand of football Sexton was playing. I think if you place it all the, the atmosphere around at the time, you, you place it in a little context. You fast forward to the early Ferguson era, where there was huge um, skepticism as to whether Ferguson, um, you know, would 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 be an improvement on Ron Atkinson. And and interesting that Dave Sexton's early approach was similar to what would happen when Ferguson came into the club later. Yeah. Ferguson took a look at Ron Atkinson's team and thought, these guys are too small. These are these are not fit for the hurly-burly of English football in the same way as Dave took a look at it and said, yeah, they're pretty players, Bucken and Greenoff, but we need somebody who's going to be rising above the defenders to uh, about above the forwards to head the ball up to the halfway line so it went for jordan uh, sorry mcqueen and 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 we need a, a formidable physical pro, uh, presence up front therefore we need jordan i mean in a way i suppose the best thing about it from the united point of view manchester united's fans point of view was that they they 
they've had torn the heart out of Leeds United by uh, buying their two most potent forces. Uh, I'll just tell you a little story about, um, about Joe and, and Gordon, both Scots, of course. Sven Joran Eriksson used to tell this story about when he was a young coach, uh, learning, wanting to, traveling the world to learn from the masters. And he went to Leeds United. Right in the midwinter, he'd asked the manager of Leeds United if he could come and study Leeds training. And he was told, yes, no, no problem at all. And he arrived at Leeds in the middle of blizzards. It was, it, it was about, a, the snow was about a foot thick. And uh, he thought, oh, God, I've spent all this money on traveling to England. And I'm not going to even see a training session. He was completely wrong, he said, because he went to Ellen Road. They'd rolled out of the training ground was right behind the main stand in those days at Ellen Road, as it has been at Old Trafford in the Busby era. And uh, they'd uh, marked out a pitch in the snow, and the snow was still falling. And he thought, yeah, but, you know, it might be just for a couple of players to run off injuries or something. But no, the squad runs out. And he remembers that uh, McQueen and Jordan were wearing short sleeve shirts. <laughs> in the blizzard he said and as soon as the session started they were knocking seven bells out of each other those two and it was only a training session in a blizzard and he thought oh, i think i'm beginning to understand what english football is about and dave for all this you know academic nature um you know was bowing to that attitude that in english football you've got to fight for the right and um hence those two players came in it, it, it seemed, on the face of it, they seemed great signings. And certainly, um, indications, uh, you know, it cost nearly a million pounds for two players, which in those days was was record-breaking stuff, you know. Um, and uh, so it looked as if as if uh, Edwards and the board were, were, were willing to back Dave uh, and his judgment uh, in the transfer market. But... Yeah. On the field, it wasn't looking, it wasn't as exciting as the headlines uh, on the arrival of these players must have uh, must have seen. No, um, McQueen's right. I mean, don't get me wrong, McQueen and Jordan were both hugely popular with the support they took to them because, because of that physique. I mean, Jordan certainly was a physical player. To describe McQueen as a physical player is a bit unfair because he wasn't like a, a rambunctious centre half or anything, he was just taller than Brian. And yeah. more of a traditional stopper centre half than what Brian was. A very exciting player, Gordon. Um, he was known as Gogo partly because his name was Gordon, um, but also because of his adventure and dash, and um, you know the fact that he was blonde and, and very very quick. You know, added to this, and, and, and one of the exciting sights was was he, he wasn't afraid to take the ball and surge upfield with it. Yeah. So although he was an aerial presence. He, he was also he, he'd like to play, and he um, was a it, it, an, an exciting introduction. Joe was exciting in a in a. I mean, Joe is is a is a, a, a lovely bloke, and still still I still see him occasionally. But oh, he was a horror. Of some of the things he did on the field, and he was crafty with it, you know. And he'd come in to Leeds United. He'd come from, I think, Morton in Scotland, and he'd come to Leeds United at the end of that that era where, you know, the the, the Don Reevee era, where basically you, you kill your granny to win a tackle, you know? It, it, was, it, was, it was hard and it was professional and it was, don't get me wrong, they played some wonderful football at, at, at Leeds, but there was a, a harshness of... Uh, a ruthlessness about it that Joe um, had very much bought into. Yeah. Um, United, they, I mean, McQueen and Jordan, they make an impact in terms of the presence is definitely felt, but in terms of defence, United's record at keeping clean sheets doesn't necessarily improve. Jordan only scores three goals, I think, in 16 appearances. We'll get to the stats in a moment. So mm -hmm. it's a slow start from that regard. They haven't really made a massive impact on, on the form of United. 
And in fact, towards the end of the season, United are languishing in mid-table. It's only a run of four consecutive victories that helps them finish 10th. They are defeated in the FA Cup um, at West Brom, losing the League Cup of the first attempt. But the European Cup Winners' Cup is where the other main story is. The first um, round they play against Saint-Étienne in, in France, they go down there and... There's <laughs> It sounds comical to look back at it, but certainly, I mean, anyone who was there would have probably felt it was pretty frightening at the time. There was a bread strike going on, so all the St. Etienne fans had, had got long breadsticks and they were throwing them onto the, <laughs> um, onto the pitch, and it caused a lot of crowd trouble. Um, for a moment, he, obviously, United fans responded. They were definitely not blameless. There was a lot of trouble in that. Um, I think so much so that United were initially expelled from the competition, they were reinstated, um, but they were told by UEFA that they had to find a place that was over, I think it was 200 miles away from Old Trafford. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so they looked north, south, east and west. And the only place that was still on British territory that fit the criteria, I think, was Plymouth <laughs> in Home Park. So luckily for the Devon bit, because United, they've got fans all in every pocket of the country. For the Devon yeah. United fans who would have to normally travel six hours to, to a game. They had a, a home game where United played. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is a good point to talk about the rising problem with hooliganism, Paddy. Being yeah. honest, where we've already talked to in earlier episodes that United had to, they had obviously a problem in the relegation season. They had a problem earlier than that with Franco Farrell's team having to play the first few games away from Old Trafford. They had to play a home game at Stoke and at Anfield. So, um, it had been a rising problem through the decade, hadn't it? Yes, it, it had. We're talking, as I've mentioned before, in 2022. And, and so the the atmosphere of the 70s is very much on, on people's lips as we, um, you know, face growing tension between uh, workers um, worried that inflation will erode their... This was very much... The Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Living standards. And this was very much the atmosphere of the 1970s. In fact, those of us who lived through the 1970s, this is our worst nightmare being reenacted at the moment. But in addition, during that period, um, we there were a lot of depressing things about life in, in Britain. The 1970s contained um, a lot of tension, and this was, ex this was sort of exemplified by the atmosphere around football. It was, it, it was pretty horrible, and it was it was, of course, to get worse in the, it, until it got better. Um, began to get better after the horrors of the 1980s. So, um, yeah, it was it was it was a depressing time, a time when you you didn't in polite society you didn't boast that you worked uh, on the fringes of football as I did at the time. I was yeah. uh, it was in the first few years of my my journalistic career covering covering the game. Quite a difference considering the rewind 20, 25 years and the likes of Don Davies and Alf Clark were the celebrities of the day, weren't they? They were, yeah. Uh, it was, it, it, I mean, it, the, the, the hooliganism actually grew during the Busby. Busby was still manager when it started to become a, a concern, um, not just at Manchester United, although Manchester United were one of the clubs perceived to have, to have the because I presume because they had a bigger away following than most clubs uh, to have that it was perceived that Manchester United had a particular problem along with a few others West Ham yeah. for example Millwall and um, it uh, Leeds United as well and it it um, it was it was it was a problem and it kind of tarnished the the, the closing years of the Busby era and it was very much something that all United uh, uh, managers had to sort of was at the back of their minds uh, right up to the era, the, the season that we're talking about, which is 77 8, I think. Yeah, when, when we talked to Sammy when he, he was on for the second division season, he was talking about um, 
the notoriety of the away support. Obviously, they travel into towns that didn't, they weren't used to dealing with that volume of support. But obviously, the away fans, they, they were a new generation of younger lads who'd grown up following United. And, and, you know, they were, I think a lot of them, if you talk to them now, they're quite happy with the reputation that they had because it was yeah. so notorious in its own way. And, yeah, he does, he does go back. He was stretching through the decade. You mentioned Millwall. Um, it gives us a good opportunity to mention Gordon Jago, who had been QPR manager. He basically created the side that Dave Sexton inherited that had gone on to do so well. But Sexton, uh, Jago from QPR went to Millwall. Millwall, um, obviously, you mentioned they, obviously they've had a long, long, probably the most distinguished club in England that have got this reputation for a, a hooligan sector. Yeah. But Panorama did a sting on on them in the late 70s. And this was right at the time when Gordon Jago was trying to clean up the support. He was actually really going into the supporter clubs and everything like that. So when BBC said they were going to do a feature on the cleaning up acts of Millwall, Jago was happy for it to go along until he realised when the programme aired that they'd, BBC had put a couple of plants in there to stir up the trouble. You know, even the Millwall fans were saying they didn't recognise who these guys were. Yeah. Like, Caused a big stir. It made them look even worse than what they were. That's what that was the intention of the program. Panorama made them look even, you know, didn't even anticipate or regard anything to do with this cleaning up part of it. Yeah. And, um, and Jago actually resigned in protest in that, and he, he moved to America afterwards. So yeah, yeah. very interesting um, studying in hooliganism over that decade. Um, and that, like you said, it was only going to get worse in the coming years. Um, yeah. Which also is the case for United on the pitch as well. Obviously, they they did play the second game against Saint Etienne. They won two 0 in Plymouth, but that um, basically created this side uh, this tie against Porto, which the players claim that they got the sickness from the jabs that they had before the game. I'm not sure if the timing on that is absolutely right. I think that the the jabs were either a lot earlier or or after. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I wasn't aware of it at the time. This is probably a, a testament to my, my my journalistic lack of skill. I wasn't even aware of the of the injections. I was at the game in uh, the Stadio da Santas in, in Porto, in Oporto, and uh, <clears throat> it was, a, my recollection is that a Brazilian called Duda yeah. scored three goals. Uh, that a midfielder, the mid, two midfielders, Oliveira and Octavio, uh, who I mean, it was a, it was a majestic performance by the Portuguese. It was it was quite brilliant. <clears throat> um, but I had no idea. I mean, on I, some reporter I was, I'd know I didn't know about the breadsticks. I'm, you, you you just told me about the, the strike. I didn't know about that in uh, in France. Uh, and I've just learned about the. Um, the anti-vaxxer um, sentiment in, in, in the Old Trafford dressing room. So I, I always get the story, but it's usually 50 years late. <laughs> no, don't worry, buddy. You you were a good reporter. It's all right. It's all fine. Um, <laughs> um, no, yeah, so United lost that game 4-0. Porto were unbelievable. It's almost unassailable back at Old Trafford, but the theatre of dreams as it would later be given the name by Bobby Charlton and Alex Ferguson in the late 80s, I think, was when it was officially christened um, with that, was still pretty much conducive to an environment where it's basically saying, come on, dream of the impossible, do something that you don't think you can do, in the same manner that we've talked about Duncan Edwards trying to inspire United against yeah. Real Madrid, in the same manner that we saw United actually doing that against Real Madrid in the Santiago Bernabeu Stadium in uh, yeah. 1968. And they... Put up a fight and they score the goals. Old Trafford is going nuts. I remember Sammy Macro. I remember a few of the players saying they walked out of that tunnel and felt almost like Old Trafford was expecting them to come back. If you yeah. can imagine that against the 4 0 down in Europe, yeah. Old Trafford was actually expecting them to know you've got to come back and win this game. Well, that uh, was that was what the great uh, home performances of the of the Busby era of the Busby Babes. You know, that was the expectation. Do you remember a few years ago, Barcelona were something like five goals down to Paris Saint-Germain, I think it was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and yet the crowd turned up expecting them to win on aggregate. They, they did. 
And, and, and it's the same thing at United, that there, there was a, a genuine feeling the tie's not over yet. And, and sure enough, United, uh, you know, scored five goals. The only problem is that they, they let two in and, and that, was, that was them out. But um, yeah, at least, at least there, was, there was a bit of the old uh, Man United in Europe spirit, uh, Sean. They didn't go, they didn't get humiliated yeah. twice, you know, which was, which was important. Yeah, um, and it should be said as well, without wanting to be disrespectful to Dave Sexton, that it was probably their best performance of the season, and, and it came when they had to play hell for leather, basically. They had to play in the old docky style, so they let the reins off and, and went for it, unfortunately. The defensive frailties, which they showed under docky as well. So 5-2 result, which would normally be a great result in Europe, um, is not good enough. Any night did, 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 did Alex Stepney let in a bit of a soft one? Uh, one of the two away goals. I think he might have done it. Alex is still in the team, isn't he, at this yeah. stage, from what I can remember. And it's extraordinary. We're talking in this series about manager after manager after manager. And somehow, like the Ravens in the Tower of London, there between the sticks is Alex Stepney. But uh, as, as I recall, however vaguely, I, I, I think he might have been responsible for one of the, the goals that that, that prevented what would otherwise have been a, the most extraordinary turnaround. Yeah, I mean, he's twelve years into his United career now, so he's um, you know he's coming close to the end anyway. And throughout this season, he does share more of the responsibility with Paddy Roach, who is given a fair number yeah. of games. But it is, I mean, yeah, that the defeat against Porto that comes in November, United limp towards this tenth place finish, um, four points behind Leeds United. Um, hugely disappointing considering what they were going into the season um, hoping for. A lot of criticism about the style of play being a lot more pragmatic than they had been under Docker. You had generally a team who didn't even think about what they were doing before and now looks like they're overthinking. Um, and really ironic when you consider that this is a centenary season. This is the first time, and listeners and viewers of this podcast are going to say all oh, the same old story, but this is probably the first time in United's history where there was this kind of criticism about their identity of style of play, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely so, because the, the Doherty era had recreated in, in, in substantial measure the excitement of the, you know, I don't want to compare the sides, but the, the, the excitement of the Busby Babes era. Um, and, uh, and here now was, was an altogether more commonplace, um, less soulful. Kind yeah. of football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, put the tactics up before I go through the squad statistics. You can yeah. see the team there. Stepney it doesn't, it doesn't look that different, does it? No, um, you've obviously got Nickel, who's in for um, for Scythe, who played majority under thing, but Nickel's breaking through now. Houston, mm. more or less, he's sharing. I mean, he plays less games overall, but more games in the league than Alberston, so that's why he's in there. Ah, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask about Arthur Alberston because he was, he was certainly, yeah, pushing. Um, yeah. But who's going to have the majority? Is he? Ah, right, okay. Yeah, like by by a nudge, but you would also say Houston played in the centre of defence when Buchan was out as well. So yeah, um, yeah. you had a few instances like that because obviously I've got in this team lineup, I've got McQueen who played fourteen games, and then you've got Brian Greenough who played thirty six, but. I, I'm trying to put this as as the team looks at the end of the season, basically. Apart from Hill, who left yes. on his birthday, actually, which is some ah, birthday. For them. Right. What uh, what what was the who who came in for Hill then after Hill left for Derby? So you would have um, McElroy moved to the left hand side. Ah, yes, 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 yes. And um, probably at that point, you know, you had Pearson as well moving around. You had yeah. Uh, Macari moving around as well. Grimes was. Yeah, there. you might have four three three, maybe. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah like yeah. that. Um, so yeah, um, and obviously Joe Jordan and uh, J oh, Jimmy Green off in the front line as well, um, and the midfield more or less staying the same, apart from like we said, Hill. We should also mention as well that while we said Hill's gone to Derby County, so too did Jerry Daly. Um, he's already on the move, and he didn't play this season. He was pretty much Dockett's first signing. Dockett. Yeah. Made bids for <laughs> he was making bids for everyone and he'd be successful with a couple of others by the way. But he made a bid for Pearson, didn't get him, and I, 
I'm pretty sure he made a, a bid for McCreary and he would later get him. And um, I'm gonna say that there was he probably made a bid for Brian Greenoff, but Brian wasn't ready to move just yet, so he was in for as many people as he could, and he was quite happy as well, Ducky in the press to kick the boot in whenever Sexton's team were not playing well. The start of that era we were talking about last time when um when Ducky would be quite um outspoken about United's failures over the current uh, coming years. Um let's go through the um, I, I think at, at this point I'll tell you one of the best I don't know if it was the doc who um, made this uh, one who invented this one. In fact, I think it was a journalist who said, um, and he was asked about this playing style under Dave Sexton. And uh, he said, um, Dave's, Dave's idea of adventure is to have an after eight minute at 7.45. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I've definitely heard that one from Tuck. <laughs> and, and I think from Gordon Nil, to be fair. Um, yeah, but yeah. There was another one, wasn't it? It was like with. I think it might have even been Martin Buckingham who said this. Um, under Tommy, the reporters didn't know what to put in because he said so much. But under, oh no, didn't know what to leave out because Ducky said so much. But with Sexton, yeah. they didn't know what to put in because he said so yeah. little. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean it was a bit cruel, but that the, the, the you, you wouldn't expect the doc to discourage such uh, behaviour, would you? No. Um, okay, the squad statistics. Um, Alex Stepney, the senior, senior goalkeeper, 29 appearances, 23 in the league. Paddy Roach, as I said earlier, we did really share that position with him this season. 23 appearances in all competitions and 19 in the league. Arthur Albiston, we mentioned earlier, 38 appearances, th uh, 28 of those in the league. Martin Buchan, 38 appearances and a single goal. 28 appearances and a single goal in the league. So he's missed 14 games, which tells you what a big miss uh, booking is there. Yeah. For Scythe, four appearances in all competitions, three in the league. Brian Greenoff, 36 and a single goal, 31 and one in the league. Houston, um, we have a problem <laughs> with this. <laughs> 37, sorry, he just led the timing of that, the way that I delivered it. I know, you, you couldn't resist it. I, I <laughs> yeah, we are the podcast of bad puns for sure. Um, 37 appearances, yeah, yeah. 31 in the league. And then you've got Gordon McQueen um, in here. Um, we mentioned earlier, history at St Mirren, Leeds, centre-back. Um, he's arrived for £495,000, which was a British record. Weeks after Liverpool paid their own British record of a £350,000 for Graham Souness, which tells you the size of the fee mm -hmm. and really the the, um, the size of the statement that United were making. He, yeah. he definitely endeared himself to Leeds fans by saying 99% of players want to play for Manchester United and the rest are liars. Um, <laughs> on arriving at United, one of the most famous quotes in United history. Um, Scottish international, six foot three, a definite threat in the opposition box. And like you said, he liked to play um, with the ball. He made one, uh, 14 appearances in the league and scored a single goal. Jimmy Nicol, the other senior defender, as we mentioned, played at right back most through this season, scored three goals in 47 or two in 37 in the league. And the other defender who played just one single game was Martin Rogers, a Nottingham-born fullback who played, like I said, just a single game in that 4-0 defeat to West Brom earlier in the season. He was transferred to QPR and then moved to Australia, both with former manager Tommy Docker. And said Tommy Docker at QPR, yes, he would move around quite a lot in the next few years. In fact, he probably had about three spells at QPR in the next two or three years. And I'm not... This podcast is about Manchester United not following Tommy Docherty's colourful career. <laughs> you know, his three-month stops wherever he went. Um, but yeah, he took Martin Rogers with him a couple of places. Um, tragically, Martin died in, in February 1992, around the same time as Alan Davis, the um, player who's not yet in this series, but um, passed away in similar circumstances. He was found dead in his car in Hampshire, believed to be... Um, an attempt on his own life. Um, yeah, he made just one appearance as Martin. Um, he, he, you know, like I said, he came through the youth system at the club, I believe. Let me just double-check that for sure. Um, yeah, um, I think he came through the youth system at United. So we go into the midfield. Um, Steve Koppel 
played every single game on the right-hand side, 42 appearances, five goals, 52 appearances and nine goals in all competitions. This was the start of a run, a record-breaking run of consecutive appearances that he would make for the club. Um, I think it was... I think it was definitely over 200 he would make in the end, but we'll get that official yep. number later in the series. Um, Gordon Hill, before his sale, 17 goals in 36 league appearances, which is a great record from the wing, 19 in 45 in all competitions. Lou Macari in the middle, 11 goals in 40 games, 8 in 32 in the league. David McCreary, 6 uh, six substitute appearances and 17 starts, which is 23 in all competitions. Two goals, one goal in 17 in the league. Chris McGraw, 11 substitute appearances, 12 starts, so that's 23 in all competitions, a single goal, one goal in 18 games in the league. Sammy McElroy, nine goals in 48 appearances in all competitions, nine in 39 in the league. And the other midfielder, that we've got to talk about is Ashley Grimes, who made his first appearance this season. He scored two goals in 17 appearances, two goals in 13 in the league. Ashley Grimes, a left-back and a midfielder from Dublin. He played three years for Bohemians before he came to United in March 1977. I think that makes him docket his last signing for £35,000. A very capable player, Ashley Grimes. Mm. Quickly getting international honours, but whenever he seemed like he was going to get a decent run in the United team, he always struggled with injury and illness right when it seemed like he was settling in. And so, a bit unfortunate, but as you can see, he would go on to make a, a very decent number of appearances for the club over this spell that he was there. Um, mm -hmm. Now into the attack, Jimmy Greenoff. A lot of injuries this season um, reduced him to just 28 games in all competitions. He scored six goals, and that those six were in the league, six in 23 in the league. Stuart Pearson, 15 goals in 39 appearances, 10 in 30 in the league. He also suffered with injury problems, missing 12 games. That brings us on to the other two strikers. First of all, Joe Jordan, we already mentioned, a target man at Leeds who did well to get in at Leeds after they had an established partnership of Alan Clark and Mick Jones. When Jordan broke through, he was basically a foil for Peter Lorimer to play off. Um, a really good target man to sort of drop the balls down and let um, Lorimer play off him. He wasn't a renowned goal scorer at Leeds, but he was nonetheless a clear target for crosses in the box and really good at knocking the ball down as well. So um, as much as opponents hated him and as much as... He had an abrasive style. He was he was the kind of player who the forward players who played around him really did appreciate, wasn't he? Tom, uh, wasn't he? Paddy? He was. Uh, yes. He, yeah. Uh, absolutely a player's player. Yeah. Um, and Andy Ritchie was the other striker. Um, he played just four times this season. He came through the youth ranks, locally born in Manchester. Scored a hat trick for England schoolboys against Germany um, yeah. earlier in this campaign, so a lot of attention was on him. He had only just broke through into the reserves in the previous season, scoring in a game against Villa. Um, but this season in the reserves, he scored 13 goals. So, not actually, no, 13 goals across two seasons. So he was rewarded with four appearances in this mm. season without scoring. Yeah, um, I, can, I can remember being very, very excited when he came into the, the equation, um, Andy Ritchie. Um, what, what I think one or two of us didn't take into account was he wasn't just quite quick enough for, to, to be a, a really, really top player. But he did score exciting goals. Yeah. And he, in the following season, he made a really big impression, uh, but yeah. not in this season. A gentle introduction of just four appearances so far. Um, United's colours, red, white and black, um, as they usually were. They're very cool awake, it remains, and they've sold that issue with Admiral and Adidas, so they've got the three stripes on. And the awake is still the, the blue one that is like the, the red shirt. Um, the United review this season, it, it's been changing through the decade, and now they've even changed the landscape, uh, changed into landscape from portrait mode. Um, yeah. Very nice, stylish looking, um, showing off that FA Cup in the middle, which they weren't going to have ownership for, for too long. Um, but this one is from the Arsenal game in, in November 1977. Yeah, no, mention of, no mention of welcome to Old Trafford. Yeah, no men having a handshake. I mean, um, when you think about it, it makes you nostalgic for the old days when you'd get a fan shaking 
Remember the the fan yeah. shaking hands with the player. My word, look at that. That's that's very modern. For those who can't see it, Rob, um, uh, Wayne's described it very very well. The, the revolutionary landscape shape. Yeah, but it's pretty good with with match action, photographed match action instead of drawings. Yeah, although I did like the drawings. They were pretty good. Um, yeah. The key results this season, Paddy, you would say probably the, if anything summed up United's travails this season, it was the defeat in Porto and then the win yes. against Porto, you know. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the defeat to Forest before Christmas, the 4-0 defeat where Forest came and just absolutely battered United at Old Trafford was an indication of, first of all, having faith in a manager like Brian Clough, like they did do. You know, United yeah. fans were still a little bit disillusioned about the loss of Dockett because a lot of them would have supported Dockett over keeping Laurie Brown, which might have been unfair, but they had such a loyalty to Dockett. Um, mm-hmm. But it also represented that this United team, built in Dockett's image, were really difficult to manage if they weren't under Dockett. And Brian Clough under Forrest had a very similar thing, but he was in charge at Forrest. He was still there, and they did wipe the floor with United at Old Trafford. Very, very sobering experience. And because they'd been in Division 2 together, and they were about to accelerate and win um, the league, as they did do this season, and the League Cup, um, there was very much a case of the United fans thinking, God, that should have been us, even yeah. though um, Forrest... United weren't as good as Forrest anyway at that time, but you could understand the United fans thinking that ah, that should have been us at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ipswich won the FA Cup. Liverpool won their second European Cup. United's average attendance was down slightly, a couple of thousand to 51,349. And the top goal scorer, as we mentioned earlier, was Gordon Hill with 19 goals and 17 goals of those in the league. So a very difficult start for, for Dave Sexton. But what we could tell by the end of the season that he was definitely being given the the backing and the faith of the United board, even to make the unpopular decisions in order to take United to the next step. Um, there was still that feeling within the United contingency that um, perhaps United um, hadn't been coached in the most um, philosophical way by Docker. So bringing in a coach like Sexton was likely to take time to have its true effect. So if that meant losing a player like Gordon Hill in order for the, the long-term betterment of, of the squad, then then so be it. Um, United were invested into the long-term with Sexton for sure and they weren't about to make any rash decisions even if the supporters had already made their feelings quite clear um, towards the end of the season. Um, obviously, Paddy, as we summarise the first season under Docker. It's still fair to say, oh, sorry, under Sexton. After, um, it's still fair to say that even accounting for the fact that it was going to be a transition, it was still massively underwhelming. Yeah, yes, that's uh, that's you've hit the nail on the head. Um, massively underwhelming, but the relatively small drop in attendance, uh, also kind of backs up your feeling that come on, this this new approach is going to take time and. And more signings, and I'm sure in the next episode, uh, more signings will arrive um, as the as the hope that uh, that Sexton and, and Manchester United were made for each other it is still still burns. Yeah, well, that's it for this episode. If you're watching back on the video, please give us a like and subscribe on YouTube. Um, if you're um, watching, please give us a comment in the comment section and join in the conversation there. We're always um, going to reply to the comments that you, you leave and we always like reading them. And if you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. We will be back next time to talk about the 78-70. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. Talk Sport. Powered by fans.